My dad loves to tell a story about a mate of his from uni days. Uh, the story goes, during exam times, uh, this friend, sorry, it's just one particular exam time, this friend was pent up with stress and anxiety. And they were down the main street of Armadale in New South Wales. And his Fred, friend said, you know what? I feel like jumping up and down on the roof of a car. And so he did. He climbed up on the roof of the car that was right there and started jumping up and down on the roof. Now, this is the main street of Armadale during the daytime. So unsurprisingly, it didn't take long for a police officer to come down and shout, Hey, what do you think you're doing? At which point my dad's mate, who just quietly went on to become a Presbyterian minister... My dad's mate replied, it's okay, it's my car. And he was actually able to show the rego papers and somehow prove that it was. Though I still think the story ends with the officer giving my dad's mate a stern word about appropriate behaviour in public. If it had been someone else's car, he would have found himself behind bars. But it was his own car It's within his authority to damage it if he wants, though maybe wisdom would lead to a different way of dealing with stress. Last week we saw what happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Uh, We listened to the first part of Mark 11. We saw Jesus entering Jerusalem on a cult, self-consciously entering as God's humble and lowly king, And then he went into the temple, uh, the house of God, and he cleared out the traders who were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Unsurprisingly, uh, this gets the attention of the authorities, of the priests and the other religious leaders. Who's this bloke from from way up north? What's he doing? Uh, Who does he think he is? Jesus got their attention. He upset them. And we heard last week the religious leaders started planning how to fix this problem properly. Mark 11.18 says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So the plan's starting to come together. Today we're picking up the story the next day. Jesus has spent the night on the Mount of Olives, and he's come back to the temple. And straight away, the temple authorities start putting their plan into action. And on this day, their plan involves a series of tests. Uh, Three tests, and we're going to look at all of them today. Uh, A series of questions they pose to Jesus in the hope he'll say something dumb, something that'll get the crowds back onto their side. Something that'll incriminate Jesus and force the political leaders, Herod or the Roman authorities, something that'll force them to take action against Jesus. And so as Jesus comes into the temple, they begin with a front-on attack. And like the police officer, they come to Jesus and ask, who do you think you are? Who gave you authority to come into our temple yesterday and kick out those good, upstanding small business owners? Uh, But Jesus sees through their ploy and instead of answering them directly, he throws his own question back at them. So verse 27, have a look there, Mark 11 and verse 27. They again arrived in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, 
The chief priests, the teachers of the law and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, why doesn't Jesus just answer them? Why doesn't he say, I am the Messiah, this is my father's house, I don't need to ask permission to do the right thing to restore my own father's house? Why doesn't Jesus say that? Especially because he said now three times, he knows he's going to Jerusalem in order to be rejected and executed. Why doesn't he just tell them the truth and get the ball rolling? It's because... He is in control and this is not the time. He still has things to teach. And he wants his death to be timed with the Jewish Passover, though we won't see that until chapter 14. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he throws them a question they can't answer or they won't answer because no matter what they say, they are going to get caught out. So verse 31 They, so the priests and teachers and the elders, are disgusted amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that Jesus really, sorry, that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. I love it, don't you? Jesus is brilliant here. Jesus bowls the ball and they don't even take a swing. I love how Mark is such a clever storyteller, the way he leaves the religious leaders hanging. Oh, if we say of human origin, oh, they don't even want to countenance what might happen if they said that. He shows their cowardice, how they love power more than truth. But that's actually not the main point. It's In this whole back and forth in the temple, it's actually a little bit easy to be distracted by the way Jesus outwits his opponents. But that's not the point. The point isn't that we get wowed by Jesus' debating skills. The point is that we see his authority. Why does Jesus bring up the question about John the Baptist? It's not just to make them look silly. It's because he wants to tie himself, his identity and authority, he wants to tie it to John. To John who said, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Jesus is the one who came after John. He's mightier than John and like John he has heavenly authority. That's why he raises the question of John, but the religious leaders refuse to acknowledge this. And as they recover from losing their first round, Jesus tells a parable that actually answers their original question. So this is chapter 12, Mark 12 and verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. 
Uh, with this set up, as he begins to tell this story, anyone listening who knows the Old Testament, it, it's going to be clear what the parable is going to be about. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah told a similar parable. And let's do that. Keep some sort of finger or bookmark in Mark 12. And let's flip back to Isaiah chapter 5. It's kind of just on the right-hand side of halfway through your Bible. Isaiah 5. And I'm going to read just the first two verses of Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 2. It's on page 476 if you've got one of these Bibles. Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So Isaiah is singing this song. What's the song about? Well, look down to verse 7 where it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah's song uses this picture of a vineyard to talk about God's people, Israel and Judah. Now in Isaiah's parable, the problem is the vineyard produces no grapes. But in Mark 12, in the the parable we're, we're reading here, in Jesus' parable, the problem isn't the vines, but the farmers. So let's go back to Mark 12 and listen as the story continues. Mark 12, 2. At harvest time, so the vineyard actually has a harvest, at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. Talk about terrible tenants. Do you get the story? The landlord is sending his servants to collect rent. But the tenants have no respect for the owner. They won't submit to his authority. So instead of paying their rent, they attack and kill the servants. So do you get the picture? The farmers are Israel's leaders, the kings, the priests who refused to listen to God, who persecuted the prophets, the prophets, sorry, which happened in Israel's history. For example, Zechariah was stoned to death at the king's command. Jeremiah was locked up and beaten by the priests in his day. Jesus is reminding the religious leaders of their shameful history. But it gets worse. Verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
So far, Jesus has kept his identity secret. As we've been, as we've been reading through Mark's gospel, whenever someone gets an inkling as to who he really is, Jesus says, don't tell anyone, but no longer. This is the clearest he's ever said it. He is the beloved son of the landowner, the beloved son of God. His authority comes from heaven. But just as that didn't stop the tenants from killing the owner's son, this doesn't stop the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. But Jesus isn't finished yet. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. This is the punchline to his story. What's the, the message of Jesus' story? It's not just about his identity, it's a warning. Just like the clearing of the temple, just like the fig tree now standing withered on the Mount of Olives, reject the Son and God will reject you. Reject the Son and God will reject you. That's the warning to Israel's leaders which is the point of the quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 118, the same psalm the crowd was singing as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Just before it says, Lord, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just before that, it's got this strange picture or this story about a rejected stone becoming the cornerstone. A picture of a stone the builders think is useless. It doesn't fit anywhere. But in God's purposes, it's the most important stone, the cornerstone, the first stone you lay to set up the whole building. Jesus is quoting this psalm, applying it to himself and saying, you religious leaders, you're rejecting me, but God hasn't rejected me. He's rejecting you. God will make a new house, a new temple built on Christ as the cornerstone, on Christ the solid rock, it will stand. And although they don't want to listen, although they don't believe him, the religious leaders get exactly what Jesus means. Verse 12, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Uh, These so-called religious leaders, they've got no authority, nothing in the face of Jesus, so they slink away with their tail between their legs and continue their conspiracy. Uh, But it's not the end. Uh, They go back and dare others to try their best. This time it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, The Pharisees were a religious group. We've met them lots in Mark's Gospel. The Herodians were political, supporters of King Herod. But they had a common enemy in Jesus. Uh, These guys try to catch Jesus with a political slash religious dilemma. The problem of paying taxes to Rome. Uh, Verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, 
Oh, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Uh, They lay it on pretty thick, don't they? Uh, The background to this dilemma is this. Uh, Caesar is the Roman emperor, the pagan, idol-worshipping emperor who was oppressing the Jewish nation, God's own people, the people who were meant to be ruled by God's faithful king and not by some pagan foreigner. And so the question is, if, if you're one of God's people, if you love God and you want to live his way, can you pay tax to an emperor who is wicked and corrupt and will use your tax dollars to enforce his immoral power? It's a great trap question because no matter how he answers, Jesus is stuck. If he says, don't pay taxes, which seems like the godly answer, but if you say that, then straight away you're guilty of treason and your lifespan will be very short. But if you say, well, of course you should pay the taxes, you're likely to lose the support of the crowd because you're siding with the enemy. How will Jesus solve the dilemma? Verse 15 continues, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked him, whose image is this? Sorry, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It's a brilliant answer, not only because it gets him out of the trap, but it charts a radically new way believers in God relate to human authorities. How does Jesus escape the trap? Well, partly he gets the Pharisees and Herodians to answer their own question. But he also shows that paying taxes and submitting to human governments, even wicked, idolatrous, corrupt government, it's not a threat to loving God and obeying and submitting to him. And he does it by pointing to the money itself. There's a picture up there, like our coins, ancient coins had a picture of the emperor on them. And they also had writing on them. In fact, they were blasphemous words, proclaiming Caesar to be a god. Jesus' point is, paying taxes... You can do that with a clear conscience because there's something bigger at play. Yes, the coin has Caesar's image on it, but you bear God's image. As Genesis 1 says, you're created in the image of God. The comparison is lesser to greater. Let Caesar have your coins because God has your whole self, heart, mind, strength and soul. Now, in this little pithy statement, Jesus doesn't go fully into everything, but you can see how what Jesus said impacted the disciples, impacted Peter. A couple of months ago, we read something very similar in 1 Peter 2. Because Jesus is Lord of all, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors, 
who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have felt the same kind of dilemma as God's people in Jesus' day. How do we relate to human government? And the answer has been what Jesus said. We can willingly submit to the government, pay taxes, even when those taxes are used for things we don't agree with, even evil things, because our full allegiance is to Jesus. We are free to submit to kings and parliaments, free to pay taxes and obey their laws because Jesus is Lord, because he has the authority of God himself. His authority is greater even than Caesar's. And so with this brilliant answer, which once again shows Jesus' authority, now the Pharisees and Herodians slink back to their mates and send out the final group to test Jesus. And this time, it's the Sadducees who have a go. Sadducees are like the Pharisees. They're a religious group. Like the Pharisees, they take their religion seriously, but they don't agree with everything the Pharisees believed in. Otherwise, they would be Pharisees. There's a, there's a different set of beliefs. One of the big differences between Pharisees and Sadducees is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there is life after death, eternal life. So they believed in God 100%, but they thought you worship God only for benefit in this life, because that's all there is. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question which I guess they often used in their debates against the Pharisees, a scenario they reckon shows belief in resurrection is stupid. Now, this question that they pose requires understanding something a few uh, ancient cultures did. It's called uh, Leverite marriage. Uh, What it is, is if a man and a woman get married, and sadly the husband dies without having had any children, that caused a problem with the inheritance. uh, Because there's not a child to receive the inheritance. And so in a few ancient cultures, the custom was for the man's brother or another close relative, he had to marry the widow. And then any children that were born, or at least the firstborn child, that child would be considered the offspring not of the biological father, but of the woman's first husband. It's a bit strange in our minds, but it was actually practiced by quite a few ancient cultures. It's what's happening with Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. And you can read the rules God gave surrounding this practice in Deuteronomy 25. Anyway, that was the custom, and it had become part of Jewish law. So now have a listen to the situation the Sadducees propose, which shows the dilemma they would they believe this would cause if there was resurrection life. Verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. 
It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife shall she be since the seven were married to her? Do you see the dilemma in their mind? They think, well, if there's such a thing as resurrection, then on that day, the seven brothers and the one woman would come back to life again and each of the brothers would rightly believe that he was the real husband. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Now, with the other questions, Jesus answers with another question. But not this time. He doesn't mess around with this one. He goes straight to the answer. He hits it straight on the head. This whole imaginary problem shows they don't know God. They've got plenty of religion, but they don't know God and they haven't read the Bible properly. Jesus gives a two-part answer and we'll look at them one at a time. So this is the first part, verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. It's a tricky answer. Jesus isn't saying, he doesn't mean when you die, you become an angel. Look at the words. He doesn't say when the dead rise, they become angels in heaven, but they will be like angels in heaven. It's important that we get this right. Jesus is not saying eternity is floating on clouds playing harps, because that's not what angels do anyway. But what he's saying is resurrection life will be like and unlike our life now. Here he's focusing on the way it will be unlike. The main way the life of the resurrection will be different is we're going to be living in the presence of God, like the angels seeing the glorious face of God in the face of Christ. And how this fits with marriage is, well, marriage is a picture. The biblical ideal of marriage, one man and one woman united for life, is a picture of the one Christ and the one church united for eternity. And when eternity becomes the present, when Jesus returns and the dead are raised, then human marriage will be fulfilled. Fulfilled in the marriage of Christ and the church. And so that's Jesus' first answer to the dilemma. When believers are raised, things will be the same, but also different. Jesus' second answer is to point out that resurrection is actually in the Bible. You Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures. It's taught in the Old Testament right back in the second book, verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Uh, Do you get Jesus' point? When God spoke to Moses out of that not burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. But even though they were dead and buried, God didn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Even in their death, God is still their God, which means in some real sense, they are still alive. Now, at that point, their bodies were in the grave awaiting the resurrection. 
But God speaks of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because he is the God of the living, the God of those who will be raised when Jesus returns. Once again, Jesus' answer is flawless. His debating skills are without equal. But the point of this passage is not to impress us with Jesus' quick mind, but to show us Jesus' authority. How can he be sure the dead will be raised? And how does he know in the resurrection there's some kind of similarity between resurrected human beings and angels? It's because Jesus has authority over life and death. We've seen this in Mark's gospel as he raised Jairus' daughter, or as he says in John's gospel, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The reason he has authority to clear out the temple is because he has authority greater than Caesar's, but even more, he has resurrection authority. I reckon it's easy for us as we read about this, we sit back and and you just shake your head, don't you, at the religious leaders and their pathetic attempt to outwit Jesus to try and assert their own power and authority. And you just see how stupid they all end up looking. You just go, guys, haven't you learnt? But do you know what? We do the same thing. We may not be as brash as they were. We may not say out loud, hey, Jesus, who gave you authority? But when we give in to sin... We are saying with our actions and thoughts, Jesus, you don't have the authority. I'm just going to live life my own way. And we are so good at rationalising our sin, we can even be like the Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll find a bit of the Bible to excuse our sin. We don't like submitting to authority, so we try and reason ourselves out of paying our fair share of taxes or rates or obeying the law of the land. Or we think God's okay if we focus on the family and make our spouse or our family our functional idol, forgetting that they're not ultimate, but resurrection is. Or we give our hearts and our lives to politics. We put our hope in getting our person or our party elected, and when we when they don't, we fret and think it's the end of the world. We may not be saying it with our mouths, but in our hearts we're asking, hey, Jesus, who gave you the authority? Jesus' authority isn't shown by his clever words. It's shown in the cross and the empty tomb as he dies and rises to life just as he said he would. And so the question for you and me today is, what are we going to do with Jesus' authority? Will we put up a wall of clever sounding questions or will we listen to him and submit to him as God's cornerstone?